The following program contains subject information that may be inappropriate for our younger listeners. Parental guidance is suggested. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. This program is just for you if you are not a Catholic. Maybe you've got a question or two about the Catholic faith. Not quite sure where to get that question answered. Well, let us take a shot at it. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. Find out what the Church actually teaches about that subject you're wondering about. 833 833- 288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of the U.S. and Canada, please dial the number 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. He will uh, forward any questions that you might want to post via YouTube or or Facebook. We are streaming live right now. Uh, just put your question in the comments box, and Jeff will take it from there. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? You know, I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing decent, thank are, you. Are you staying cool? Reasonably. You know, it's it's hot out there. It is hot. Uh, not just us. I, I just read that uh, in China, they're getting record high temperatures. In Europe, it was over 100. In Rome, it was over 100. Well, I... Um I guess I'm grateful for 91 in Birmingham today. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Hydrate. Here's an interesting question from uh, Don in Buffalo. Dr. Anders, I have been listening to the wonderful Catechism in a Year with Father Mike Schmitz. Recently, the discussion has focused on creation and specifically the nature of the angels and humans. It's a fascinating subject. My question is, are humans, once they are in their final state of perfection in heaven, of a higher order than the angels? Yeah, I think it depends on what you mean by in a higher order. Yeah. Uh, so uh, humans are different from angels in a number of ways, and they do have a dignity that angels lack. Christ did not um, assume, the second person of the Trinity did not assume the angelic nature, but the human nature. So that's that's unique to the human species. Okay. And uh, I mean, that is, to me, it's kind of hard to imagine a greater dignity than having God himself assume the nature of your species. Well, yeah. You're not going to say that of angels. Um, however, angels also are in grace. The, 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 the holy angels are in the state of grace, and they experience the beatific vision, which we also will do. So that they've got that going for them. Yeah. Um, and uh, a couple other differences. Humans will have bodies in the resurrection. They will have material bodies. And so their experience of the beatific vision will be qualitatively different from that of angels, which will not enjoy an embodied knowledge of God. They're mere spirits. And the scriptures does say that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So I guess you could say that, you know, there is a hierarchy and uh, angels exist for the sake of ministering to human beings and glorifying God. Humans don't exist for the sake of ministering to angels. But I think angels are pretty darn cool anyway. 
They are indeed. Don, thanks so much for your question. Here's one from Hans in Ajax, Ontario, Canada, who says, I have a Catholic friend who often mentions Monty Python as if it was a good or fun entertainment. Now, I remember when I was a teen, these comedians were very popular. Now I'm in my late 50s. I'm starting to wonder if it has done more harm to the faith of Catholics than we actually realize. I am of the opinion that most of their humor was depraved and hateful against the church. What do you think? Well, okay. <laughs> so you're you're asking, I have to confess, a, a Monty Python fan. I am selective in the Monty Python that I watch. Uh, but, uh, you know, all humor... I'm, look, I'm no humorist, but all humor uh, is aimed at someone. Someone is the brunt of every joke. Sure. And the Python had the decision that they were going to satirize everybody, that nothing was sacred, that no one, no institution was sacred. They were going to take a shot at everybody. And so they definitely crossed some lines in doing that, and it could be offensive. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess I, I personally allow them a fair amount of artistic license. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but you know, I would confess to you that some of their humor is a bit off color, and that's not the stuff I want to show my you know, my 12-year-old. So be selective. Yeah. There you go. Hans, thanks so much for checking in from Canada. Here's one now from Robert. Dr. Anders, why are there different stages of canonization for saints and different titles? My understanding is that any title for a saint, be that servant of God, blessed, or saint, entails they are declared to be in heaven. If so, why are there these distinctions? Should that have any significance in how we pray to the saints? Thanks, Robert. Yeah, thank you. So th- they don't all imply necessarily that the soul is in heaven, um, and there is a, a graduated process of trying to establish the person's holiness, and and that's what those titles indicate. Now, it does have an impact on uh, the way we pray to them because it has an impact on where that individual can stand in the public cult of the Catholic Church. Mm. So, you know, we don't have feast days uh, in honor of, um, of servants of God and right. so forth. It's, it's the canonized saints. So they, they, those are the ones about whom we are sure, uh, and those are the ones that we celebrate in the liturgy. Very good. And we do appreciate that. Here is an email now from um, Dennis, who says, Dr. Anders, isn't the better question, what's keeping you from becoming a Catholic Christian? That is, coming home to the church founded by Christ. In my case, during a visit to the shrine in D.C., it became clear to me that the church was the true vine. Great shows. Thanks, Dennis. Um, I mean, I have no problem with that. It's a bit more of a mouthful. And, you know, when you're <laughs> doing radio, you want something pithy that yeah. is a good soundbite. So what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Uh, that, that works for me. But, but, of course, if you're a Catholic, by definition, you're a Christian. So it's a little bit redundant. But not everybody realizes that, right? Yeah, all Catholics are Christians, not all Christians are Catholic. Very good. And uh, Dennis, uh, thank you so much for your kind words about the show. If you have an email that you would like to send to us uh, on pretty much anything regarding the uh, teachings of the Catholic Church, do send it to uh, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. We try to uh, tackle two or three questions. Sometimes we can only get to one, uh, but we do try to answer emails on every one of our programs. And then once a month or so, we'll tackle a whole bunch and uh, go to the mailbag, uh, answer a whole bunch of questions about once a month or so. In a moment, we'll go to Sean in Lincoln, Nebraska, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Lines are open for you at 
288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. It is Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews on this rather toasty Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. Our phone number for you, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for David, 833-288-3986. Hey, let me tell you about a new book available now from EWTN Publishing, The Roots of a Christian Civilization. It's your compendium on Catholic social teachings, written by our friend Father Brian Mullady. He answers the question, Should law implement morality or not? Father provides you with a compendium of accessible answers to a wide range of questions on spiritual and moral theology. You'll find out how to live your life in Christ, regardless of your vocation, to attain personal fulfillment. Great book, The Roots of a Christian Civilization, First Principles of a Just and Ordered Society by Father Brian Mullady, a new book from EWTN Publishing, available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Sean, a first-time caller from Lincoln, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hey, Sean, what's on your mind today, sir? Oh, I'll tell you. Yeah, I love Dr. Anders and David. So I was going to ask you guys, what's the hardest thing about being Catholic and then what's the most, or just Christian, what's the hardest thing about being Christian and the most rewarding? Okay. Yeah, great question. So I uh, appreciate that. That's interesting. I, I, you know, I can speak for myself, um, but I think that's going to be different for different people. Um, you know, I think... The, what is the most? What's the hardest thing about being a Christian? Hardest thing about being a Catholic? Um, it might be, it might be, the act of faith when life seems to be turning against you, in the face of suffering, to to uh, affirm the goodness of God and to put one foot in front of the other instead mm-hmm. of despair. That that might be the hardest thing to do. Um, well, I might have to list two or three. Another one would be. Um, the, the, the bad example of Catholics, including myself, to myself, right? So letting myself down and being let down by other Catholics, mm. that, that, that's, that's pretty hard to bear, I yeah. think. So those two things, I think, are probably the toughest part. Uh, in terms of the most rewarding, mm. well, hopefully uh, the life of heaven would be the most rewarding. But in this life, uh, the psychologist William James <coughs> wrote that, in his mind, the religious worldview was the one that believes that there is an order in the universe and that the task of my life is to bring my life into some kind of harmony with whatever that order is. I think that's a pretty good definition of at least a lot of the world religions, pretty good description. And for a Catholic, I think it's very extremely rewarding to view that higher order in the universe as both rational and benevolent. Uh, there are plenty of other ways to conceive of reality other than rational and benevolent, but the Catholic Church says rational and benevolent. That's how God is. And so the, the task of Christian life uh, really is just the perfection of the human person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a kind of cult of the human person in modern society. I mean, I can't tell you the number. You've seen them, too. The, the self-help books, the podcasts, the, the websites, all about perfecting your mind or your emotions or your body or whatever. And there's a lot of good that comes out of that. Uh, but to bring all of those attempts to perfect myself into a kind of harmony— 
uh, under the domain of virtue and to believe that that has a transcendent referent in the benevolent rational God and that there's a narrative to history uh, stretching from creation past to the incarnation of Christ to the eschaton and that I'm a participant in that great story really endows life, endows life with a profound sense of meaning um, that's not arbitrary and it doesn't run contrary to the natural good of the human person but fulfills it. So uh, for me, that's the way I conceive of my own Catholic identity and I find it very satisfying. Sean, thank you so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. Do you have a question for Dr. David Anders? Love to talk with you today at 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Donald is listening in Middlesex County, New Jersey, on the great domestic church media. Hello, Donald. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi. um, Dr. Anders was talking about... uh a little more, like a couple weeks ago, about uh, how the fact that the body, uh, the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And um, he gave an eloquent, very good argument on it uh, with logic and reason uh, and not much faith, and because he could explain it to us even almost without faith. I know you need a little faith to believe it, but... I believe he used the word substance, matter, and presence. Um, I don't know. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. Well, um, I don't think that one has to have faith in order to state the Catholic dogma. I mean, an atheist could accurately describe the Church's doctrine on the Eucharist. Yeah. Um, to believe that the dogma is true, that does require a supernatural act of faith. Um, now, because we couldn't know it rationally. I mean, there's no way I can't put the Eucharist under a microscope and discern the, the presence of Christ. I can only mm-hmm. know that by an act of faith. I can only believe it by an act of faith uh, on the authority of Christ himself who reveals it. Um, but uh, the, the, basic, the Church's basic position is that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, but in a special way, in a special mode. Um, and the mode is a substantial mode. In other words, it's the substance of Christ's body and blood, but it's not the various properties of Christ's body and blood. So, you know, my substance is that of a human person, and my properties are that I, you know, I have a certain height, I have a certain weight, I have a certain skin tone, a certain tone to my voice, you know, these sorts of things. And when we speak about the body of Christ in the Eucharist, we're talking only about the substance. What is it that makes the body to be a body? Mm-hmm. But, but abstracted from all of those technical term here, accidents, all those properties. So we don't expect to find, say, Jesus' height in the Eucharist. He's not, he's not like 5'10 in the Eucharist, nor his weight. There's not 155 pounds or 175 pounds of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, um, nor his skin color. None of those things are present. Now, to say this, we're talking about a mode of presence that's unlike any other mode of presence. It's unique. It's the only thing in the universe that's like this, and that's why we could only know it by faith. Donald, does that answer your question? Uh, yeah. Um, I, I agree. I, I have faith in it, and I do have the reasoning and logic to understand it. Um, so, you know, uh, some people rely more on faith, and some don't rely on it as much. And I think that answers my question. Yes. Yeah, thank Very you. good. Appreciate that question. Appreciate your call there, Donald. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. We do have a couple of lines open. 
288-288-3986. Jeff is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Jeff says, why are Episcopalian orders not valid? They have a traceable line back to Christ. And why are Orthodox leaders considered valid, but Episcopalian not? when both broke away. Yeah, thanks. So your uh, your second premise that, uh, well, your first premise that the Episcopalians have uh, a traceable line, apostolic succession back to Jesus, that's exactly what the Catholic Church disputes. That's exactly what they dispute. So it's not because they broke away from Catholicism that they lost their, their Episcopal orders. So Henry VIII is the one that took the Anglican Church, the Church of England, outside of the obedience to the Pope. But his church continued to have validly ordained bishops and priests, and so they could validly confect the Eucharist and the other sacraments, even though they were no longer in union with the Pope. It wasn't during Henry's reign. It was during Edward's reign, Henry's child, King Edward, when they introduced a new ordinal, a new rite for ordination, and, uh, uh, and the rite is not the Catholic rite of ordination. Uh, and it, it was heretical. It was, an, it was a Calvinist mm. rite, not a Catholic rite. Yeah. And so it vitiated the sacrament of ordination. So anybody ordained under the, under the Edwardine ordinal was not validly ordained. It'd be like saying, you know, if, how do you get legally married in, mm. in the state of Alabama or wherever? I mean, in the past, now today you just have to have a marriage contract. But you used to have to say, you know, I, David, take thee, Jill, to me, my lawfully wedded wife, you know, love, honor, cherish, et cetera, till death do his part. If I had gotten up in front of the altar and said, you know, well, I take you, Beth, uh, to be my weekly companion until, you know, the next Mission Impossible movie comes out, <laughs> like, that wouldn't count. That wouldn't be the thing. I wouldn't be promising to do what marriage is, and it wouldn't be a marriage. In the same way, if, if what you intend and say in the right of ordination isn't what the Church intends and means and says at the right of ordination, then it's not a valid sacrament. And so they lost their orders at that time. Yeah. Hope that helps you, uh, Jeff. Thanks so much and, for and, watching And by the us. way, that's, that's the infallible teaching of the, of the Catholic Church. So okay. um, Apostolic Curi, the encyclical of Leo XIII, which ruled on the question of the validity of Anglican orders, declared them absolutely null and void. And, uh, and the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith under Cardinal Ratzinger uh, answered a dubium about whether that judgment was infallible and it determined that it was. So they definitely don't have valid orders. Okay. Thanks so much uh, for watching us this afternoon on YouTube. Appreciate hearing from you, Jeff. Uh, I, I had to smile when I saw the first four words in this email from Chris, where Chris says, Protestants you universally believe that. So already I'm going, oh, really? What is this? So Protestants universally believe that the tearing of the curtain in the Holy of Holies means man can now go directly to God. Priests and priesthood are no longer required for interaction with God and or Jesus. So what is the Catholic belief on the tearing of the curtain? Um, yeah, thank you. So I understand that Protestants make a big deal out of that. And of course, the, the, the narrative of the Gospels says nothing of the sort. All it says is, the curtain was torn. Okay. So that all, all that theological addition is just their speculation. Got right? it. Uh, now, the Church doesn't—here's how the Church typically does not operate. The Catholic Church does not offer a definitive interpretation of every biblical passage. Right. Right? That's not how it functions. Uh, so there, there, it's possible there could be many Catholic interpretations of that passage. I will give you mine. The Levitical priesthood is done. No more Levitical priesthood. But the idea that there is no priesthood 
because the Levitical priesthood has been done away with is absurd, because the New Testament says that there is a priesthood. 1 Peter 2.9 says you're a kingdom of priests. St. Paul in Romans chapter 15 says that his priestly duty is to configure the Gentiles as a pure offering to God, and other passages as well. So there absolutely is a priesthood. It's just not a Levitical priesthood. We no longer approach God through the blood of goats and bulls. Um, the essential work of a priest is to offer sacrifice. St. Paul says in Romans 12, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. I mean, sacrifice is intrinsic to the nature of the new covenant, and it's the function of a priest to offer sacrifice. So uh, that's just dead wrong that there are no priests in the new covenant. And, um, and my take on the curtain is that no more Levitical priests. Okay. But not no more priests. Very good. Called to communion. Christ himself is a priest. Yes, indeed. But he's not a Levitical priest. Called to communion here on EWTN. Uh, Michael watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Uh, can you please explain how the bodily resurrection will differ from the beatific vision our soul will experience in the period after our death? before the bodily resurrection. Yeah, thanks. So keep in mind that the beatific vision does not end with bodily resurrection. So it's not like I get beatific vision for, you know, a hundred years, and then I have to swap that for bodily resurrection. No, 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 no. Beatific vision is the state of the soul from, from death onward, well, for the saints, and at purgatory onward, after purgatory for, the, for those that are purified in those fires. Uh, you never lose the beatific vision. What changes is the quality of the beatific vision. Before the resurrection, you have the beatific vision in a disembodied state. After the resurrection, you have the disembodied. You have the disembodied. You have the beatific vision in an embodied state. Uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas, writing on this topic, uh, speculates that the difference is uh, not one of intensity, but one of ex ex extensivity. Right, oh. extension. Um, I compare it sometimes to watching your favorite, you know, 1920s movie in black and white. And did they have movies in 1920? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Versus seeing it in, uh, you know, colorized. Yeah, for sure. Appreciate that. Michael, thanks for watching us today on YouTube, as is Mary. Mary says, if baptism works ex opere operata, would an unrepentant teenager, in order to please his parents, still receive the baptism validly. Does the bad intention of the recipient invalidate the sacrament? Okay, so we have to distinguish between validity and efficacy. So uh, uh, an, an insincere baptism can be validly received, but the grace of the sacrament can be impeded by the disposition of the recipient. There are some sacraments that are said to revive upon the proper disposition. So if someone is baptized validly, but say without faith and repentance, uh, they won't receive the grace, uh, but they've validly been baptized. So at whatever point they achieve the proper disposition, then the sacrament has its effect in their life. Um, and uh, 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 so that's, yeah, so that's how it works. Okay, very good. And then uh, one more question here before we go to break. God bless you. Thank you. This is uh, from Anonymous. I understand it's through baptism we're adopted into God's family, enter into the life of the church, and first receive saving grace. My question is, how does this differ from the grace of God offers to all of us when he first calls us? My understanding is that by Christ's sacrifice, he earned for us the grace we need to be transformed, and that this grace is offered sufficiently to everyone. So why then baptism? Yeah, thank you. So the, uh, theologians distinguish several modes of grace. There's what we call provenient grace, 
uh, prevenient meaning coming before, that's the grace that would move us, for example, to seek the grace of baptism. Um, they're what we call actual graces as opposed to sanctifying grace. Uh, again, act, actual graces can be prevenient grace. They can mm-hmm. come before baptism. Uh, or they could come after baptism. This would be like the inspiration to do a concrete good thing after the soul has been baptized. Yeah. Uh, and so the sanctifying grace of baptism, the one that configures us to Christ and makes us members of his body, the church, is distinct from prevenient and actual. Now, there's a, another mode of sanctifying grace that can come outside of baptism, but that's extraordinary. Okay, very good. Thanks for your anonymous uh, email. We're going to get to some more emails and hopefully your phone call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for David, 833-288-3986. Congratulations going out to a very longtime member of our EWTN Radio family, Guadalupe Radio Network, celebrating their 23rd year with EWTN today, this day, July the 19th. How about that? There are 46 radio stations serving Texas, New Mexico, Kansas, Alabama, Florida, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. Our congratulations going out to Toya Hall, Sammy Rodriguez, Richard Reyna, and their fabulous team at Guadalupe Radio Network from all of us here at EWTN. Let's go back to the phones and talk with Caroline in Albany, Oregon, listening on her Alexa device. Hello, Caroline. What's on your mind today? Hi. um, I have a question about Eastern Orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. So my husband, um, I became Catholic last year, and he's been kind of a little behind me. And he's been leaning more towards Eastern Orthodoxy, and one of the reasons is that he doesn't—he sees why the Pope is a thing, but he doesn't think that the Catholic Church actually—how uh, to word that? Like, that he's become more than he should be. Um, and I was just curious if Dr. Anders has some, like, examples I could give of why he—why the Pope is how he is today. And, I don't know, maybe a suggestion on reading material that, like, refutes the Orthodox claims— <laughs> Okay, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, first of all, uh, let's distinguish uh, the office of the Pope and the power that he possesses by Christ's institution. Put that on one side. And then let's talk about, say, um, the administration of the papacy uh, in, in, you know, public policy and persona on the other. And there's no doubt that uh, popes have... Let me give you an example. Pope Francis, for example, Pope uh, Benedict before him, used uh, social media, for example, to to spread their influence throughout the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pius IX founded uh, the papal newspaper, L'Osservatore Romano. Why? He's really the first pope to, well, maybe not the first, but in a big way to use media to try to influence uh, international policy Mm -hmm. and to really put his person out there as a player in in public opinion uh, on a scale that we'd never seen before. And clearly today, I mean, that's definitely the way the popes have been operating. John Paul II, of course, was an actor and a great personality and really created uh, what I would call the, the, pult, the, the cult of papal celebrity, right? That's not essential to the papacy at all. And it's important to distinguish that because to those who are 
unschooled in Catholicism, they can confuse the cult of papal celebrity with the actual office of the Pope and his powers. And, and they'll realize that Catholics, while they're bound to obey the Pope in many things, they're not bound to uh, adore his person or to agree with him on everything that he says. And um, uh, famously, Pi uh, not Pius IX, um, John Henry Cardinal Newman, uh, who became, he was a cardinal, he was made a cardinal by Leo XIII, he's a saint of the Catholic Church, canonized uh, in recent uh, years, this is definitely an Orthodox theologian, may yeah. one day be a doctor of the Church, had huge problems with Pius IX, huge problems, and, um, and was known to pray that, you know, God, if you want to speed up this papal transition thing, I, I, I wouldn't really mind. You know, he, <laughs> he really didn't like a lot of the things that Pius IX was doing. He spoke out against them. Uh, most famously, Pius IX called the First Vatican Council, which uh, the conclusion of which Newman agreed with. He was ecumenical council. I agree with what it teaches. But he thought calling the council was a bad idea. Now, I'm not saying I agree with him, but I'm just saying that was his position. Yeah, he, was called, yeah. he took what was called an inopportunist position. He thought it was inopportune to call the First Vatican Council and define the dogma of papal infallibility. So he mm -hmm. thought, it's true, but we shouldn't have defined it, right? And he said that publicly. So th there's a lot of nuance between the soul of the individual Catholic and the person of the Pope that can be obscured through the use of things like social media and, the, and that cult of celebrity. So that's, that's an important point to distinguish. Uh, but in terms of, well, you know, why would the Pope need to have the real issue with the Orthodox is universal jurisdiction. Why would the Pope need universal jurisdiction? Well, because he's responsible for the sheep of Christ, right? Yeah. And, and if the papacy has a special gift of infallibility uh, from God, then he would need to exercise that on occasion to maintain the faith. I mean, that, you know, you, where, you, where your power ends, that really your, your influence ends, too. So, I mean, that's why. And in terms of reading material, the, the fairest uh, discussion of the Catholic Church in relationship to the Eastern Churches that I know is Aidan Nichols, uh, Rome and the Eastern Churches. It's very sympathetic to the Eastern Churches, uh -huh. but it uh, takes a Catholic point of view and really lays out uh, the situation with, of Rome vis-a-vis -vis the Eastern Churches. I might also point out that, you know, if you have, if you've become a Roman Catholic and your husband is sort of toying around with the idea, but also tempted by orthodoxy, there is always the option for him to join an Eastern Rite Catholic Church. And the Eastern Rite Catholic Churches, they are churches with their own distinct identity and ecclesiology and canon law, uh, and um, and they they have a, a bit more independence from the person of the Pope uh, than the Latin Rite does. They still are under the Pope, but in a sort of different mode. And, uh, and they're very conscious of that fact. And mm -hmm. just while we were on the phone here, I, I looked up uh, on the Internet and saw there are a number of uh, Byzantine Rite Catholic churches that are within a commutable distance of your town. So that's another th option for him to consider. Caroline, thanks so much for your call. We hope that's helpful for you and for your husband as well. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Steve in California listening on the EWTN app. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today, sir? Gentlemen, thank you for taking the call. As always, uh, Tom and uh, Dr. Dave, as a non-Christian or Catholic uh, Christian, can you help me to understand the difference between doctrine, Catholic doctrine, and the, pri the private revelation, things that I have to accept or not accept, like Marian doctrine? Or yeah, sure, thank you. So private revelation is uh, anything that some individual claims to have received uh, from God, some communication from God, after uh, 
the, uh, the handing on the deposit of faith by Christ and the apostles. So if someone says, well, you know, God told me, and pe- look, people are saying God told me like every other day. I mean, just yeah. you, you guys, so much God told me, I can't even stand it, right? All that is a claim to private revelation. Now, some of those claims to private revelation are trivial and ridiculous. You know, God told me I you know, had to order a Diet Coke with my hamburger. I mean, I've heard people make claims like that, and I totally don't have to believe them and shouldn't believe them. Um, uh, but, but up to and including the most celebrated Marian apparitions in the church— whether you're talking about Lourdes or Fatima or Guadalupe or whatever it might be, those are also claims to private revelation. And it doesn't matter if a pope liked it, uh, if he venerated it, um, if he encouraged people to go on pilgrimage to that site. It doesn't matter if the pilgrimage site's, you know, 150 years old, people have been going there forever. Um, a Catholic is not obligated to believe in, uh, uh, in the uh, veracity of any purported private revelation. And so having a skeptical attitude towards them is an allowable thing to do. And I would say, actually, it's incumbent upon you to evaluate the evidence claimed for any private revelation. Would never say that about public revelation, which we're bound by divine authority to believe. But any private revelation, not bound to believe it. No matter how popular it is, no matter how many promises are attached to it, no matter how many Catholics tell you, man, this is the stuff. If you just do this, follow this devotion, venerate that saint in this way, man, that's the thing. You, you don't have to. You do not have to. All right. Um, but when it comes to the question of Marian dogma, and you threw that category in there as well, um, Marian dogma is not a matter of private revelation. Marian dogma is revealed to us uh, by God through Christ in the church, and it's part of the deposit of faith. Uh, and so uh, if you're talking about genuine dogma, genuine dogma, Things like uh, the perpetual virginity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, her virgin, the virgin birth of Christ, uh, her sinlessness, her immaculate conception, her assumption into heaven. Those are your main Marian dogmas, that, and also her dignity, her title as Mother of God. Those things are non-negotiable because they're part of the deposit of faith given to us by Christ and the Apostles. Steve, is that helpful for you, sir? Very much. You guys nailed it. Thank you again. All right. Thanks so much uh, for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Uh, If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Right now, we're going to go to a call that we received overnight on the EWTN listener comment line. Calling to find out from Dr. Anders whether masturbation is a mortal sin or a venial sin. Okay. Uh, yeah, thank you. So um, it's grave matter. That, that, that's a different category. So what the Church says about mortal sin is that for a thing to be a mortal sin, the material act has to constitute a grave violation of the moral law, mm-hmm. and a person has to do it knowingly, willingly, with their eyes wide open, as it were, and not under compulsion. So there's three criteria to evaluate something as a mortal sin— and two of those criteria are subjective to the individual involved. The only one that's objective is the gravity of the act. So what the Church teaches about sexual sins of this nature is that they are objectively grave. Whether or not they constitute a mortal sin depends on the disposition of the person involved. And the, generally, the Church makes a—confessors, for example, <clears throat> make a big distinction between, you know, the 14- or 15-year-old who's going through puberty and kind of learning about things uh-huh. uh, versus, uh, you know, the 50-, 60-year-old man or woman who's had a lifetime of sexual maturity, hopefully, uh, behind them to make more uh, better-informed choices. 
Appreciate that. Call to communion here on EWTN. Hey, there's lots happening at this year's EWTN free family celebration. Please join us Saturday, August 26th, right here in Birmingham. Enjoy talks from your favorite EWTN radio and TV hosts. You can shop at EWTN's religious catalog, attend Holy Mass. You'll be part of a televised show. And the day's activities culminate with a Eucharistic procession through the streets of Birmingham. Go to EWTN.com com slash family celebration to find out all about it and to register and remember it is all absolutely free call to communion here on ewtn let's go to mike now in spokane listening on the great sacred heart radio hey mike what's on your mind today well thank you both for taking my call it's hot in spokane 94 97 wow. friday wow but we don't have the humidity here thank god that's, so that's good helps. that's good yeah, well, my question's on the Eucharist, and, you know, I, I believe that the, the, the Eucharist is actually the body of Christ. And um, I believe there's a town, place in Italy where the Eucharist drips blood once a year. Um, yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. So there are, there are a number of such pilgrimage sites around the world of purported Eucharistic miracles, and in one form or another, what, what unites claims to Eucharistic miracle is that the Blessed Sacrament is said to take on some aspect of the appearance or quality of actual flesh and blood. And uh, the, I think it's important to understand that to do so is extraordinary. And to my way of looking at it as a catechist, um, really extraneous to the act of faith. <clears throat> so St. Thomas Aquinas, in his, uh, his famous Eucharistic hymn, Adorote Devote, makes the point that my sight, my smell, my taste, uh, my touch, my various senses <clears throat> are by definition deceived when I perceive the Blessed Sacrament because in the normal mode, the Blessed Sacrament does not look like flesh and does not look like blood. It's only, Thomas says, by trusty hearing, hearing the Word of God, that I can make an act of faith in what is not evident to my senses. And so that, that's, that's the nature of the Catholic tradition. There are some mysteries that are beyond our sensory or rational experience. The Eucharist is chief among them. Really, That and the Blessed Trinity, of course, the Incarnation, is something we can't attain uh, merely by the senses or by rational consideration. Now, uh, is it possible that uh, in some times and places, in an extraordinary way, God would uh, create this extraordinary sign, uh, this arresting sign, to call people's attention to the Blessed Sacrament and to the truth contained therein in the form of a miracle? To be sure, God can do that. And that has certainly strengthened the faith of many. Uh, but such things are not necessary to the faith of Catholics. Um, I mean, I myself didn't come to belief in the, in the real presence because I encountered a Eucharistic miracle, but, but because I believed in the authority of the Catholic Church to teach it, right? Yeah. And, uh, and so I don't ever want to make my faith hang on, you know, say like a hematologist looking at the blood dripping from a, from a host. That, that's, that's not where the basis of my faith is. But I do recognize that these things, because they're so arresting and, and, um, and uh, uh, surprising, turn one's attention to the question of the Blessed Sacrament and raise the question, can I believe in the doctrine of the real presence? But I hope that if the answer is affirmative, that I believe on the authority of Christ in the Church, not simply on my sensory experience. Mike, thank you so much uh, for your call today. Uh, let's go to another phone call that we received overnight on the EWTN listener comment line. 
My name is Bob. I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. Why did the church change not going to church on Sunday to be a mortal sin? Even though you can still watch it on television or something if you're somewhat handicapped. I was just curious, does that still make it a mortal sin? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. So what the law of the Church is, is that every uh, baptized Catholic who is physically capable um, must attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation. That, that, that remains the case. That has not changed. Okay. Now, it's never been the case that the, that the material act of violating a command is ipso facto a mortal sin. One, one has to, one has to commit a gravely wrong deed, uh, knowingly with intent, and not under compulsion. So you have three things necessary for something to be a mortal sin. So you know the soul, for example, who is prevented from going to mass because they're ill. Well, you know that 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 person's compelled by something beyond their will. They're not in sin at all. They've done no sin, right? Um, a person could act in ignorance of the command, invincible ignorance. Perhaps they were badly taught as a child, and their parents didn't take them to Mass frequently, and they, mm-hmm. they understand their Catholic identity, that they are Catholic, but they are unaware that there's a Sunday obligation. Well, for that soul, missing Mass is not a moral sin. They, they don't know. They, they, you can't be responsible for what you don't know. Uh, but in terms of the obligation itself, that has not changed. Um, uh, since the 1913 Code of Canon Law, when the universal obligation to attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days was instituted. A long time ago. Not that long. You think about 2,000-year history of the Church. True, true. Appreciate that, and uh, thanks so much for your call to our EWTN listener comment line. Uh, Joanne from Houston, uh, listening normally there on Guadalupe Radio, uh, she wrote to us, Dear Dr. Anders, before Christ's passion, death, and resurrection... Only the Holy Trinity and the angels were in heaven, correct? The righteous like Moses Moses and Elijah were still awaiting Christ to open the gates of an almost empty heaven. Could that be the reason Jesus didn't tell us, while he still walked the earth, to ask the intercession of the saints? Non-Catholics always challenge me that Jesus never tells us to pray to Mary and the saints, and yet Mary was still alive and the saints were awaiting Christ's redemption. And again, that's from Joanne in Houston. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. I, I'm going to have to beg to differ. I, I don't think that's why the Gospels are not so outspoken on this question. Um, and the reason I say that is because the intercession of saints is already in the Bible before Christ. Hmm. So their relics and their direct intercession. So 2 Kings chapter 13 Uh, is an instance of the relics of the prophet Elisha, bringing about miracles in the life of the people of God. Uh, Second Maccabees chapter 15, we find the prophet Jeremiah, who's dead, uh, praying and interceding for uh, the people of Israel, for the people of Judea, I should say. So there, there is the intercession of saints and angels. Um, and, of course, uh, there's, there's uh, a great deal more archaeological and extra-biblical evidence for that practice in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Israel and in uh, Second Temple Judaism. So it's just, I, I think that's false. I, I, don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's true that nobody interceded. Now, what is true, it seems to me that you're thinking of heaven <clears throat> in uh, spatial terms, like, yeah. you know, yeah. going up to heaven and as, as, a, as a location that is empty of inhabitants. That's not the way we—when we talk about heaven for Christians after death, that's not what we mean. We're not talking about a place. 
we're talking about a state of the soul which won't have a body until the resurrection, living uh, in the direct knowledge of God in what we call the beatific vision. So a more precise way of saying it was souls were not admitted to the beatific vision before the ascension of Christ. Doesn't mean that the righteous dead were incapable of praying uh, for the church. Joanne, thank you so much for your email. Here's another call from our EWTN listener comment line. Hi, my name is Rod. I am from Twin Lakes, Wisconsin. I've heard in the Gospels, somebody asked Jesus about food, and Jesus says, you do not know the food that I eat. I was just wondering what that was about. Right, so Christ says that, that, that his food is to do the will of the Father. He says, mm-hmm. I, I haven't come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he's obviously using food in a metaphorical sense here. Appreciate that. Matthew, uh, writing to us from Tulsa, Matthew says, The Catechism says that grave matter is specified by the Ten Commandments, such as not stealing, not committing adultery, and not killing. In Matthew 5, Jesus says that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, does this mean that any time someone has lustful thoughts, it is a grave matter and therefore possibly a mortal sin? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. Let's distinguish between thoughts and intentions. Okay. Uh, I have very little direct control over the random associations of my thought life. You know, I think neuroscientists talk about the the, the default mode network when we're not attending to anything in particular. Uh, our, our minds don't shut down. They just start bouncing around about random stuff, generally ruminating about our personal problems. Mm. And that's just, you you can't ever stop that. That just goes on all the time, constantly. And, uh, and it's just the way the human brain functions. Mm-hmm. It's, there's some content in there. Even when you're asleep, you know, you're dreaming stuff. So you I've noticed that as I'm getting ready to fall asleep at night, you know, and I'm not, you know, willing myself to think about it, but things start popping in. Somebody's playing the movie in there, and it didn't you. That's right. right. You know, that's right. You know, and it's just on the screen, and you can't, you can't <laughs> turn it off, you know. So that, that's not a sin there's, because there's no will involved. There's no conscious intent there. And that, that might include, uh, you know, uh, scenes, images, thoughts of, of somewhat uh, salacious nature, and particularly uh-huh. if a person's lived a, uh, that kind of life for several decades and you have a storehouse of memory. Uh-huh. Uh, those things just pop up on you, and there's really not a whole lot you can do about it. You can replace a bad habit with a good one. You can, you know, feed your mind with better information, and maybe that stuff will dissipate over time. But, uh, but it's going to come up, and you can't do anything about it. So that's, well, that's, not, that's really not imputable as sin. When we're talking about moral fault, we're talking about, oh, let me dredge through this storehouse of memory and pull up some of those juicy memories that yeah. I shouldn't have done and see if I can really nurse those for every bit of titillation I can get out of them. Now we're talking about moral fault. Yeah. Matthew, thanks for listening to us in Tulsa. Appreciate uh, your email. Here's one now from Arthur. Dr. Anders, we read in Revelation 5.8 that four living creatures and the 24 elders all fall down before the Lamb, which is Jesus, each holding a harp and with golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So does Jesus then gather up the prayers and then bring them to the Father, thus fulfilling his role as the one mediator in this manner too? Or does he answer the prayers of the faithful himself? Thanks for your help, Arthur. Um, yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, the, 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 the gathering up metaphor it implies a kind of, you know, quantity and spatial referent that I think is inappropriate here. Um, the the mediation of Christ, uh, 
is always mediating our relationship to God the Father. And, and so even when we pray to Christ, we are praying to the entire Blessed Trinity uh, that proceeds from the Father as the first principle. So our, our reconciliation is to the Father uh, through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's Trinitarian through and through. Very good. Appreciate that. And uh, Arthur, thank you so much for your email. Here's one now from an anonymous person who says, Dear Dr. Anders, you're, you're going to love this. What is the church's teaching on intelligence and personhood? Would an animal with sophisticated communication skills like a gorilla or a dolphin be considered intelligent and therefore a person? And could a computer ever be considered a person? God bless you, Anonymous. Yeah, thanks, Anonymous. I really appreciate the questions. So uh, these are um, philosophical questions that have been treated in Catholic philosophy, you know, going back 15, 1700 years. Thomas Aquinas has an extensive discussion, for example, of the doctrine of the human person, the intellect, uh, uh, and the Summa Theologica. And so what I'm going to say here is less a matter of settled dogma and more a matter of uh, sort of standard philosophical approaches that Catholic philosophers would take. So the, the intelligence is not the only category here. I mean, you can talk about intelligence as a sliding scale, you know, if it's the ability to problem solve, for example, um, general intelligence, being able to, you know, deal with different kinds of problems in different contexts. That's obviously a kind of a sliding scale. So we can talk about animal intelligence. And, you know, I have a golden retriever who's smarter than my cat, but he's not the sharpest tack in the box when it comes <laughs> to the canine world, you know. Um, and uh, even octopuses uh, are said to possess a certain kind of intelligence. Hmm. That's not the real dividing line with human beings. Uh, human beings have, uh, well, they have rationality, right? They have rationality, they have language, and they have the power of abstract thought. And those really kick us into a higher order. Um, so far, we've got no evidence that animals possess that kind of power. Their, their intelligence hasn't kicked over into that, into that, uh, into that degree of awareness. Um, so that's really where we have to look to. That's where moral responsibility comes in, the ability to rationally deliberate abstractly between different kinds of goods and select the hierarchically ordered goods. That's what makes us in the image and nature of God, where we derive the freedom that gives us moral responsibility. My dog is a creature of habit and instinct. And, um, you know, if I, if I throw the ball, he's going to chase it. He can't <laughs> not do it. Yeah. It's automatic. And her final question, could a computer ever be considered a person? Um, well, you know, I, not being an expert on AI, I, I can't speak with any authority, <laughs> but I'm gonna, my gut says no. I'm with you. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN Radio, 2 p.m. Eastern, with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern. Check out the podcast at EWTNRadio.net. On behalf of our great team, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow right here on EWTN. God bless. <laughs>